lot of athletes will rehydrate and then they, they, they wake up a lot at night. I'd say wake up, waking up once a night is probably okay, but any more than that can be a bit of a, you know, I would say is problematic. And I've seen it in some high-level diligent athletes who are trying to do everything right and they're actually inadvertently messing up their sleep by having hydration at the wrong time. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask. It's the stuff you talk about in your training sessions or it might be in your recovery session having a coffee. What we aim to do is break it down, invite a guest expert or researcher in part A, and then we have a part B where we invite an athlete to add their perspective. Today's episode, we are up to 42A, Can Changing My Nutrition Improve My Sleep? And we're joined by Professor Shona Housen. And what we're going to look at is why is sleep so important for endurance athletes? What about sleep quality versus quantity? What's the difference? And can all the wearables that are out there, can they actually track this accurately? What are the useful ones, if there are any? Can the type, amount or timing of food or meals influence our ability to get a good night's sleep? Are there any supplements or specific nutrients that can help with sleep? And are there any aspects of nutrition that need to be avoided because they hinder sleep? So there we might think of caffeine or, dare I say it, wine. So before we uh, get to that info, how are you going, Al? Oh, it's been an interesting week, Steph. Kids (laughs) home from school, teachers off sick. I think half of both my kids' classes are off sick. The teachers have been away. They've had the art teacher and the Japanese teacher running their classes because they've run out of teachers. Oh, wow. Um, So, yeah, that's been interesting as COVID sort of hit a peak here in in Victoria. And then my, I was just saying to you off air, my website that um, I've been using for about 10 years and it doesn't look very fancy because it's pretty old school, but it does the job and it's worked for me for so long. Uh, It was hosted on a server along with um, my my family's business and uh, they've just sold that business and we thought originally there was a few months to move this over and get a new server and new website and everything and then uh, found out the other day that we've got a few days not a few months <laughs> it's been a bit of a mad scramble over the last 24 48 hours to uh, get a new website up and happening and yeah, that'll shift everything like my email address. So if anyone here is trying to contact me via my Next Level Nutrition email uh, and I don't reply to you, it may be because I never got it um, and try <laughs> again in a few days' time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, bear yeah. with him or contact us at the long lunch in the meantime. Yes, yeah, exactly right. <laughs> now, Steph, you're looking the most relaxed I've seen you for a long time. <laughs> Tell the listeners, is your thesis in? Submitted. It is, Al. It is. Yes. I submitted on Friday. Woohoo! Wow. Amazing. <laughs> How does it feel? Yeah, it feels good. Yeah, it feels really good. Um, yeah, I do just feel <laughs> a bit lighter 
Um, even yep. though I don't know, you know, fingers crossed, I pass. Obviously, you've got that waiting game, which hopefully is no longer than eight weeks. So, yeah, hopefully all that goes well. And uh, I'm just sending off some final reports as well to the participants because um, I was wanting and needing to wait until I knew the complete story of those final two studies. So mm-hmm. just finishing those off too. But, yeah, it does feel nice not to have that big wait there. That's for sure. It's actually been really good timing because obviously Com Games, you know, mm. just started and on the weekend, you know, what better to start off with the marathon, which, yeah, I know like we both commented on on those performances. Um, so, yeah, congrats to Jess, Eloise and Shanae and to Liam and Aaron who had like all had amazing performances and they you know, a couple of them or maybe more had had unfortunately COVID in the lead up just before. Poor Liam stepped on a bee um, just in his training in St. Moritz, the poor bugger, um, and still, you know, was leading yeah, most of the, the way. Um, but, yeah, also a massive congrats to Madison who got gold in the T53-54 where she set a, a games um, record. So, yeah, that's um, an amazing performance too. So, yeah, I've been been loving that. You too, Al? Yeah, I haven't got to watch as much as I would have liked, but I did manage to switch on for some of the triathlon events over yes. the last few days, which has been good. So, yep. so Danielle Stefano, who's, who's athletes, I've sort of done a bit of work with over the last few years. Uh, not many of her athletes were, were racing this time yep. around, but one of them, Sophie Lynn was. Oh, I uh, saw and that. She, yeah, so she managed, I think, mm. was fifth in the uh, individual and then obviously yeah. got the bronze in the, the mixed team relay. So yeah. congratulations to Sophie. I don't yeah. actually work with her. She's based over in Adelaide and has a, a dietitian through um, through okay. the South Australian Institute of Sports. So yeah. uh, she's one of Danielle's athletes I don't work with but have met her plenty of times. She's been training with the group. So, yeah, it's mm. awesome. Mm. Yeah, her legs went um, at the end of that. Um, oh, she pushed that did hard. Did you see? Yeah, 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 yeah. She was <laughs> yeah. pushing hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that was awesome. Yeah. Mm. We've got a bit happening on social media um, now. Yeah, we have had a little bit. Uh, on Instagram, we had Jamie, who's a nutritionist, I believe, um, in the Netherlands of all places. Cool. And he contacted us and said, hey, guys, great podcast you're putting out. So big thanks, awesome. Thank Jamie. You. Uh, we also had Lee contact us. Well, he not so much contact us. He mentioned us in an Instagram story. Um, mm. He had a story up about 10 inspirational brands, podcasts, and people that are all unique and worthy of support. And we were one of those 10, which is pretty cool. So cool. thank you, Lee. And uh, Maddie, who we mentioned just the other week, actually, I was saying she mentioned that uh, her coach had been a guest and I was trying, I couldn't remember, I didn't know which coach it was. So it turned out it was our former guest, Izzy Bat-Doyle, is her coach over in Adelaide, obviously. So Izzy, um, well, by the time people listen to this, competed (laughs) overnight at the Commonwealth Games in the 10,000 metres, but we're recording this in the past, Steph, the the beauty of time travel and podcasting. So uh, I'm sure she did well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Congrats, Izzy, either, you know, like yeah. for, for getting there anyway. Yes. So, yeah, yes. but, yep, exactly we're right. sure you've, yep. you've done well. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so Maddie said, I want to recommend The Long Munch yet again and thank both Steph and Ellen for doing such an incredible job. So thank you, Maddie. Thank you. Yeah, it's lovely. And uh, also on Twitter we had someone as well, Steph. Yeah, hopefully I've said this correctly. Ender? I think so. Yeah, yep. Yeah. Um, 
commented at the Long Lunch late to the You Can Drop podcast, which was episode 39A. They really enjoyed that episode. They had a question about gut training. So they asked, will high volume of carbohydrate on shorter runs, so 60 to 90 minutes, help train um, the gut for longer duration or does it need to be done at greater than two hours in training for us to to reap those benefits? We actually did a follow-up on this just recently in episode 41A. The gist of that conversation was it's probably good to have a variety So do some gut training in high-intensity short bouts, but then also do it in long sessions so both can challenge gut tolerance. So if you check out 41A, you'll get a lot more info on there. Both are also sessions that, yeah, stand to benefit from the extra carbohydrate availability rather than just needlessly overfueling the easy sessions. So focused on gut training. So, yeah, just a reminder to our listeners that you can find us on social media at The Long Munch, so Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, uh, and you can also listen to us on all your popular podcast platforms. Let's get into it. So today's episode out is... Yeah, episode 42A, Can Changing My Nutrition Improve My Sleep? And we're joined by our guest, Professor Shona Halson which is a name that quite a few people may be familiar with. So Shona is now a professor and deputy director of SPRINT. Uh, that's an acronym, and she'll explain what that means shortly at Australian Catholic University. And like half of the uh, sports science and sports nutrition team at ACU, it seems, uh, she mm. previously worked at the Australian Institute of Sport. <laughs> so she was the head of recovery, oh, she was the head recovery physiologist, I should say, at the AIS for over 15 years Um, and was involved with three Olympic campaigns there. Uh, She also provides consultancy to the Australian Open Tennis Tournament and also to Nike as part of the Nike Performance Council. And again, we'll hear a little bit about what that is and what that means shortly when we chat to her. And as part of her research in recovery, so she's, I guess, worked with the AIS athletes and and the Olympic teams uh, from a recovery point of view, but then has also done extensive research in aspects of recovery. And one of those that she's focused on particularly has been sleep with athletes. So looking at, you know, how much do athletes sleep? What's, you know, how does that compare to the general population? What are the issues that athletes face around sleep? But one of the areas that she has looked at amongst others is what's the impact of nutrition on sleep for athletes. So not necessarily doing a heap of studies in that area necessarily, but looking at what is the existing evidence around that. So we thought she'd be an ideal person to get on from that perspective and she can explain to us, you know, can changing my nutrition help improve my sleep? Mm, yeah, she's got some really good gigs and we, you know, also ask her about the Nike headquarters. So looking forward to, to this one for sure. Yep. All right. I think we should get into it. Let's do it. Shona Housen, welcome to The Long Munch. Yeah, thanks, Steph. Thanks thanks for having me. You've, you've been involved um, specifically in the science of recovery for athletes for close to two decades now, including head physiologist for recovery at the Australian Institute of Sport for over 15 years. And you had a specific role with the Australian team at several Olympic Games. Can you tell us how you first got involved in the specific area of sports science in in the first place? 
Yeah, I was always, uh, like a lot of sports scientists, interested in sport from just playing myself and, and being involved in sport, but probably not really being good enough to ever make it. Um, yeah. And so I always was interested in sport. I was really interested in fatigue. Uh, and initially I started doing a lot of work um, in chronic fatigue syndrome and then overtraining. Um, and then, of course, because, you know, fatigue is really pretty messy and multifactorial, um, mm. that really led into, okay, well, what's something that we can do and we can measure, and that's recovery. And so that kind of kind of led through to um, from my, my PhD was in overtraining, and that was interesting, and I had these grand plans of answering all these important fatigue and overtraining questions. Uh, yeah. Didn't answer too many. Um, started <laughs> out, ended up with more questions than, yes. than answers. Uh, but, yeah, that led into recovery and really trying to understand that recovery space and how can we help athletes um, minimise their fatigue or, or have their fatigue at the right times so that their performance can be improved using recovery. You've just mentioned that you did have a bit of a sporting background. So um, what was that? What were, were you a cyclist? Were you a, a runner? Oh, yeah, if you could call it that. Uh, running and tennis were probably the things that mm. I liked doing the most. Um, yeah. And, again, you're not, not claiming to have any talent, but um, just something that I, that I did through through school and, and then um, a little bit through um, later years ended up doing probably a little bit more distance running. But, yeah, again, very, very at a very basic level. Did a marathon and I've never run since. So that gives you <laughs> an indication of how good I am. <laughs> I was just about to, to ask you if you were going to come out and join me for, for an ultra or participate in Alan's study where we're running for five hours. Jonah. Steph, I am not going anywhere near you in a, in, a, in the nicest possible way. I wouldn't be anywhere near you. So, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll steer clear, thanks. And five hours, no, I could walk for five hours probably, but that's about it. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so you're now Deputy Director of Sprint at Australian mm-hmm. Catholic University. Can you explain what Sprint is and um, and what they do? Yeah, so Sprint is a relatively new research centre. So at mm-hmm. Australian Catholic Uni we have centres and institutes and so we're a research centre. Yeah. Uh, Sprint stands for Sports Performance Recovery Injury and New Technologies. So yeah. I lead the recovery stream. We have a range of other staff members and PhD students who really try to tackle that. There's questions around recovery, injury and performance and ideally uh, try to combine the three as often as we can to sort of answer big questions. And that's from both a research as well as a consultancy's perspective. So uh, we do still work with, with different teams and um, do, some, do some consultancy work and try to impact some of, um, you know, translate some of the work that we've learned from research into actual practice, which is nice as someone who's come from the yeah. applied world to still have, um, to still be able to do that kind of work with real athletes. Yeah, yeah. And I hear you've also got a pretty neat role, I would say, um, consulting to Nike as part of the Nike Performance Council. Um, can you tell us what this is and what role this involves? Yeah, so I do a couple of things um, with Nike. So the Performance Council is really around, again, it's that translation um, of um, knowledge and in, in this 
in my particular case, it's recovery um, yeah. for the average person. So, so whoever does, um, whoever does exercise. Yeah. Um, and so the idea is that um, we're sort of providing that that level of evidence um, in a way that people can actually utilise in the real world. So ha- having people optimise their recovery. So ideally, they're out there sort of doing doing more exercise. So that that's the main role that, that I have with with Nike. Mm-hmm. It's not like inventing some garments or anything like that with <laughs> Nike to help with recovery. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's times when um, I've been asked to put together white papers and and you know talking about the latest and greatest of in certain areas um, yeah. and you know looking at what the first, what five years away might look like versus okay. fifteen twenty years and um, you know yeah. sort of taking that really big picture kind of approach. So yeah, um, yeah they're I mean super great to, to be associated with and and I give them the ideas and it's their job with their super smart people to to work out how to mm-hmm. make it happen. Yeah, yeah, um, cool. And um, so have you been over to the, where's their headquarters for Nike? Yeah, in Portland. Yeah, I've been there a couple of times. I actually just came back from um, from a visit there and uh, got to see the new LeBron James Innovation oh, Centre, wow. which is just like, it's like nothing I've ever seen. Mm. Um, yeah, it's a pretty extraordinary facility. And uh, yeah, I can see that there's there'll be some some good stuff that'll come from that in the, in the coming years. Mm. Yep. Um, and in recent years, you've had a particular focus on, on sleep as a mm-hmm. recovery strategy. So how yeah. did this come about? Is um, there a story behind this or did you just wake up one day and decide <laughs> to, to study sleep? Yeah. <laughs> um, two things actually happened. So the first one was talking to athletes. You know, they were asking me questions around sleep and mm. things that I kind of, even though I didn't feel like I knew a lot about sleep, I kind of felt like I thought you would know this. Like yeah. this doesn't seem, you know, one that there was, I noticed that there were people, athletes were having problems and two, they didn't really know what to do about it. So questions mm. like, you know, I'm waking up three or four or five times at night to go to the bathroom, is that a problem? I'm like, mm, yeah, that's probably not great. Yeah. Um, and then sort of simultaneously to that, um, the head of physiology um, at the time was Professor Chris Gore and he actually went down to University of South Australia, which is where he did his um, That's where his all degrees. the good people come from. <laughs> I have heard that, Steph. I have heard that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and he was there for his, I think it was his 20-year reunion, and he um, actually caught up with a guy called Drew Dawson who happened to be the head of the sleep lab down in mm. uh, down at UniSA, and they got to talking and then, of course, um, you know, they were like, okay, we'll, put, we'll connect the people who are actually going to do the work. Um, we, yeah. we got a really, um, a fairly large uh, research grant from the government to start looking at sleep in athletes and we still collaborate with that group now. So they're now actually at Central Queensland Uni in Adelaide, but um, we do a lot of work with them um, in the athlete space as well. So it was sort of the two things kind of happened at the, at the same time and, yeah, allowed us to start this not just research but actually, you know, servicing with the athletes and so measuring mm. sleep and giving them feedback and trying to help them improve their sleep and just mm. understand, you know, because I, w- I went to, this, to the literature and I was like, how come there's nothing? like mm. nothing on how really good athletes sleep. I think everyone's just thought, well, athletes are always getting around tired, so yeah. surely they sleep well. They sleep, um, yeah. And it's like, yeah, no, that's not the case. So <laughs> that's sort of how it all kind of came together. Mm. Yeah. Awesome. It's one thing that always struck me whenever I used to visit the Australian Institute of Sport 
you know, just walking around, you know, when there was a lot of athletes there mm -hmm. um, in mm -hmm. the residence, it's like seeing like the basketballers just walking around half zombified because they're so tired. Yeah, and I would, um, working with swimming, you know, we'd see some of the athletes early morning and we ended up doing some research on the swimmers and the ones that lived on residences were getting up on average about 12 minutes before 6am, before the start of their session. So, you know, they, and again, they looked exhausted. And so, mm. and, you know, you expect athletes to be tired. It's, you know, if you're not if you're not training, you're not going to be tired, right? But there was this idea of, well, I think there's something else going to a lot, you know, happening as well to contribute to, to that fatigue. And you could understand why the coaches were like, it takes takes them a while to be able to get the athletes to, you know, to be able to feel like they can do a good session. One, you've woken up so close to the start of the training session, probably haven't eaten, probably haven't, you know, done things that you would, might normally do from a nutrition perspective, um, and they're just half asleep and sleep deprived. So. Mm. Yeah, definitely. And I think very relevant for a lot of recreational athletes that then have to get up often at four or five in the morning to train because then they've got to fit it in before work as well. 100%. And I think from the research that we've done, the one thing that comes out very clearly in almost every well in every not almost in every study we've done is how bad early morning training starts are for athletes in terms of their ability to get sleep and i mean you can imagine if you're a swimmer and you have to wake up at 5 30 in the morning you can't go to bed at 8 30 or 9 30 all the time to get the hours mm. that you need so um it just cuts off sleep and um, really doesn't protect sleep and doesn't give athletes that opportunity to get the duration that that they should be getting yeah, mm. awesome. Well, I think that's a perfect segue actually to what we wanted to look at now, which is why is sleep important? So I guess mm. if we start off with the very basics of that is like, why do we sleep? Like what's the, the function and purpose of it as we understand it? Yeah, and that's a, such a good question because there's still plenty of debates as to, you know, depending on what, you know, sleep is so discipline, uh, multidisciplinary, so it depends on what world you come from as to, you know, what your what your theory is. But um, we do know that, um, that sleep is really important for physical and psychological recovery, so the body and the brain. And if you don't, um, if you don't have... Um, if you don't have sleep, uh, there's, you know, there's there's certain data, you know, in years gone by where they've, you know, there's actual suggestion that you'll pass away from not having sleep before you'll pass away from, you know, not having, um, you know, fluid and, 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 and fuel. So it seems to be really, really important. One of the biggest theories is related to um, um, particularly the brain. There's a lot of work that's been done about how important sleep is for clearing out so you go to bed at night, um, the, the brain clears out the the um, information that you don't need um, from um, that you've um, collected from the previous day. It restores, you know, puts into long term memory the stuff that you need and gets rid of and makes space um, for the next for the next day. So that's really from a, from a brain perspective. But there's so many functions that occur during sleep. Um, from physiological to psychological. And um, there's a, a famous sleep scientist and, and, and he says that, you know, if we weren't meant to sleep a third of our lives, then Mother Nature made a big mistake. Um, and people have tried to hack it, you know, people try to hack their sleep and mm -hmm. um, it, it, it doesn't work. You know, it's something mm -hmm. that's so important for us. And now we're really seeing that 
when people are sleep deprived or who are doing shift work have you know it's cardiovascular disease diabetes um, serious mental health issues are all associated with this um, with, with sleep deprivation and tied in likely to circadian rhythms and you know people understanding a little bit more about about that space and how important timing is and regularity is in when we eat when we sleep and when we train um, so that we can um, we can optimize things but yeah it's it just seems like um, from a physical and mental perspective um, it's 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 absolutely fundamental um, in terms of recovery from what you've done and preparing you for the next day yeah okay and I guess there's probably two aspects of this that you can look at there's the qu quantity of sleep that you've talked mm -hmm. about already and then the quality of sleep do you want to talk a little bit about the quality now in terms of what that actually means what or how do we define the quality of sleep yeah, when we talk about quality of sleep, this is in a general perspective, uh, we tend to talk about efficiency. So it's usually in a percentage. So it's like what percentage of time that we that you were in bed were you actually asleep? Um, and so for people um, who toss and turn a lot, who wake up a lot at night or who take a long time to fall asleep, um, will often have lower quality uh, and lower efficiency. So there's different ways of measuring it, different technology, different equipment. But generally, we think of, you know, the percentage of time that you're in bed that you're getting sleep or getting good sleep. Um, and so, you know, some people, some people have really high sleep efficiencies and maybe slightly lower durations um, and, and vice versa. But, yeah, quality is really talking about efficiency, how efficient you are at actually sleeping. Okay. And so I guess when we have that kind of, well, should we worry about the quantity or the quality? I guess it's mm. from what you're saying, it sounds like it's about the quantity of quality in a way. It's <laughs> like the time that you're actually asleep as opposed sleep. to the time that you're in bed that's important. Yes, yeah. And that's where it gets interesting when you ask people, only to complete a sleep dive, what time did you go to bed and what time did you wake up? Um, because people could, one, go to bed and watch Netflix for two hours, <laughs> um, or two, they could take a long time to fall asleep, mm. um, or three, they could just be tossing and turning and getting a really poor quality. So actual sleep n never corresponds to time in bed. They're different because you never sleep the whole amount of time that you're actually in bed, or very, very rarely do you see someone that, instantly hops in bed, falls straight asleep, doesn't toss and turn at all um, and wakes up. So we think it's probably both quality and quantity are likely important. I think that people, there are some people who have a short duration but really high quality of sleep and they seem to feel relatively good um, and, and function pretty well. But I also think, and it's been shown in research, that if you are sleep deprived over time, that sensation kind of normalizes. So, you know, getting six hours and you feel fatigued, well, your performance might drop if you're measuring it, you know, from an objective perspective, but subjectively, like how you feel, um, uh, you just start to normalize. So that becomes your new normal. So when an athlete comes to me and says, I only sleep six hours and I'm totally fine, I'm like, well, you maybe you can try just getting a little bit more sleep and actually seeing if, if that works for you and if you do feel better because maybe you're in this state of normal and because we've all slept since we were born, right, um, we all have our own ideas of what's normal and um, that's why I always encourage people maybe to try a little bit more. Maybe you don't need more, but at least give it a try and see if that um, improves the way that you feel and how you get through the day because it's really hard to tell someone how much sleep they need. 
because everyone's different. But if you ask them how you feel when you wake up and how you get through the day, that's a pretty good indicator of, you know, whether you need more or less sleep. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, you often hear this kind of like the pop science stuff, you know, you hear numbers thrown around in terms of the optimal number of hours of sleep, you know, seven hours, eight hours, whatever it is. Is there such a number that you can kind of apply to anyone or is it much more complicated than that in reality? Yeah, it is It is more complicated. And again, you know, we're starting to understand, you know, there's a genetic component to sleep. So often, you know, for athletes, say they're really short sleepers or, you know, if they've got a sleep disorder, you, you, it's not, you can't guarantee it, but there's usually a pretty good chance that their mum or their dad or their grandparents had that disorder or they sleep in the same way, you know, that they're one of their parents sleeps. So it does make it um, really hard to say. And that's where we do ask the the athlete to start to to think like and go okay well I got this much sleep and that's how I felt and that's how I coped and that's how I got through the day um and if you're like well it takes me more than an hour to feel good when I wake up in the morning maybe um I haven't you know without 12 coffees then you know maybe I haven't uh, maybe I haven't had enough sleep. So I think doing, you, you know, getting them to have some insight and to thinking back and going, okay, this is how I slept, this is how I feel, um, and, and and putting those two together rather than me just being able to say, look, you need, yeah, look, I think we need around eight hours plus, maybe athletes more, maybe around nine to ten, not a chance that they're re- that many athletes are getting that uh, because of the the physical and potentially psychological demands of being an elite athlete then um, I think that they may need they may need more but it's it's really up to them a bit of a trial and error to make it work mm. and, and does that sort of scale do you think in terms of training volume I'm just trying to think of you know recreational athletes for example you know there might be big variations some might only train five or six hours mm. a week but then some of the guys like age group Ironman athletes might still be training 15 20 hours mm. plus in some cases a week um, yeah. does that requirement for sleep in terms of you know elite athletes need more does that probably also apply to those recreational athletes that are still doing pretty big volumes of training yeah and I think the challenge with the recreational athletes is that they'll often have you know work commitments as Mm. well and maybe family commitments and they are training at odd times because they're just trying to you know either really early in the morning or they they load their weekends because that's when they can do the long um, the long distance stuff so I think that it's easy to say that um, athletes need more than everyone else, but I think if you're the average person who's trying to fit up your whole life in, um, you know, training and exercise, sorry, training and work and family and all sorts of stuff, then um, then it can be tricky, and you might need more too because you might be cognitively really challenged in your job, um, and you may you know have that mental fatigue that you need to to recover from. Yeah, yeah, and thinking about you know you, you talked about before like there's the time that you're in bed and there's the time that Mm -hmm. you're having that quality sleep. And for some people, they're tossing and turning. Some people may not even be necessarily aware how much they're tossing and turning as well. So they, I guess they can't necessarily know themselves how -hmm. good that quality of sleep is. And there's obviously been a big trend in recent years with various wearables and other devices to kind of measure or track sleep or give you some sort of sleep efficiency score or something like that. Where are these various... Uh, consumable. I mean, obviously, you've got mm. you know sleep studies in hospital labs yep. and things that that measure that. 
but mm-hmm. in terms of the gadgets that people can use at home and, and buy online, where are we at in terms of those? Are they any good? Are they useless? Are they a distraction? Mm-hmm. Um, where are we kind <laughs> yeah. of sit at the moment? Yeah, and I could probably talk about this for four podcasts, but I'll, <laughs> <laughs> I'll keep it short and sweet as much as I can. Um, so the wearables are getting much better, much, much better. If you had have asked me this question five years ago, I would have said, don't do it. You're giving bad data. Um, but now they are getting quite good. Um, I don't have any affiliate, specific affiliation with any of the wearables, but we'll be using Aura Ring, starting to use Aura Rings in research um, mm. because now what we're seeing is these devices have their standard activity to, activity monitoring in it, so an accelerometer, but they're also adding in these physiological variables as well. And when you combine the two and your algorithms are good, you'll start to get better sleep data so the more physiological you know your heart rate and your heart rate variability and temperature and all these other things now that these devices can measure um, will start to give us better data i think the thing that we do have to be careful about is that for some people um, wearing a sleep monitor is not actually a great idea and may actually make them sleep worse so uh, so people that are really if you're really stressed person or you're really anxious and you pay too much attention to the numbers there's the possibility that you could have orthosomnia which is that idea that you you need to have perfect sleep and when you don't have perfect sleep that causes you stress and anxiety and then the stress and anxiety means you don't sleep and you get into this vicious cycle i don't think it's actually that common like people all get all well for somnia, but I don't think it's we see it that often. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think the the thing to remember with these devices is yes, they, they probably measure two stage sleep very well. So sleep and wake. Are you awake? Are you asleep? Yeah, they all do that pretty good. When you start to have some of the tech that then starts to get into four stage sleep, which is REM, non REM, and the staging, uh, they're probably not as accurate. Um, as what you get from a sleep study and so in those cases you really want to look at big you know big changes within you know an individual over time not comparing it to someone else Um, I I was I had a conversation with um, an AFL player very good one who was really worried about the lack of REM sleep um, from a device and I was like well how do you feel yeah good how are you playing (laughs) best I've ever played I'm like well you know, maybe maybe the device isn't picking it up in you, or maybe you're not someone you're someone who can cope without that. You're getting more deep sleep, whatever. So I think always because a lot of these devices don't give you a huge amount of insight into what to do from there. So mm. um, Michael Grandner, who's a really great sleep scientist, he talks about sleep monitors being like a set of scales. You know, and and for weighing scales. So if you want to add or drop weight, um, you know, you might want to measure yourself every day. You might not want to. It might be not good for you. And what it doesn't tell you is all the variables that go into that, you know, to the change in weight. What are you eating? What's your ex? Blah, blah, blah. And they don't also tell you what to do about it. Um, mm. So they're just numbers. Um, some of the devices are getting better in terms of, you know, you're saying you should go to bed a bit earlier or, or whatever. But um, so sometimes it's important to just take it with a grain of salt. Look for big changes. Use it as education. If you want to go and talk to your doctor because you're having sleep issues or you want to go and talk to someone, they might be, this data might be the foundation for a chat with an expert, mm. uh, but don't try not to get too caught up in it because for a lot of people that have 
sleep issues, especially if it's around stress and anxiety, that's often short-lived. Um, and people get really, you know, if I'm talking to an athlete and their sleep's really bad, I have to be careful because it's probably transient. And if you tell them it's really bad, that's probably going to mean that next time they're in Olympic Village, they're going to lose their minds because I've told them they're a bad sleeper. So we want them to improve, but just to say, look, you know, um, be careful with how you interpret some of these numbers. Ideally, talk to someone who knows what they're talking about when it comes to sleep and use it as a bit of an education and tracking tool to get to too caught up in in the numbers mm, yeah and that, that was going to be my question actually is you know regardless of how good the quality of data is are you finding that it's actually helpful or actionable mm. yeah i think so i think there's definitely people that um the numbers just reinforce what they already know um and there's others that are like oh wow i didn't realize i went to bed that late or I didn't realise that, you know, oh, I went to bed at this time, but it took me this long to actually fall asleep. Um, people still, you know, I still question sometimes the metrics around the sleep staging. I'm like, we don't even know what sleep stages mean. Like, we don't know whether more of this or less of this is good or bad. We, we probably know that more of the light stages of sleep isn't good. Um, but like really it's still such a new relatively new area so telling people this all this information about stages of sleep might not be you know super critical look at what time you go to bed what time you wake up which gives you your duration and how consistently you do that in terms of are you going to bed at you know 10 o'clock and only vary that within an hour nearly every night and you wake up at seven and you only vary that within an hour nearly every night you're probably doing pretty good mm. You don't need a gadget to tell you that. Yeah, and I've I've had friends who have who have had babies, and they're like, "Oh, I'm I'm measuring. I'm, I'm like, why are you measuring your sleep? Like, <laughs> you know, it's going to be horrendous. What are you going to yep. do about it? And you're just going to set like set yourself up for you know for a disaster yeah. zone. Just chill out, not chill out, but you know, just take the take the pressure off yourself and know that yeah, you're going to be sleeping bad. It's not going to be forever. Um, do you really need to monitor and know that you're getting three hours of broken sleep a night? Yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> okay, and so for um, endurance athletes, which is obviously mm -hmm. the focus of this podcast, do we know if they tend to have better, worse, or the same amount of, or quality of sleep compared to the general population? And, and is there a reason why that might be different? Yeah, we tend to know, and this is for most athletes, um, but potentially, particularly endurance athletes, because the time, often the times that they have to wake up in the morning, um, that generally athletes sleep a little bit less and a little bit poorer quality than the average population, which is kind of scary when you think of the average population doesn't sleep that well either. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, usually slightly reduced duration, slightly reduced quality, um, and the, the worst sleepers that we see from an elite perspective tend to be the ones that wake up the earliest. Triathletes, mm. swimmers, um, rowers, um, ones who are, you know, who are getting up really early in the morning. Uh, definitely we've seen other athletes where their start times are a bit later in the day and doesn't really tend to matter then what your sport is. It's um, they tend to get much better sleep because they're not, you know, truncating their sleep at really really early hours so and you know there's some suggestion that really high intensity exercise too close to bed is going to be a problem for some people so that might occur in some sports more than others 
Um, but uh, one thing we do know, though, with sleep is um, and in in athletes is when they when and we've shown this in some research and so has up so has other groups is that when they're going through an intensified training block, we did this with cyclists and others have done it with triathletes that the quality of sleep tends to drop. Now you'd think that because they're tired and they're grumpy and they're training really hard that they'd sleep well, but it seems to be this fight or flight response where the body's in a stress situation mm-hmm. um, and and doesn't doesn't you know they don't sleep as well as you think they would be. So we're always trying to say to coaches, look, you're they're training really hard and yes they seem fatigued, but fatigue and sleepiness are not the same thing. You can be really fatigued and not sleepy. So when we're asking questions around sleep, we ask sleepiness questions because I'm sure you've all experienced it. You're absolutely shot. You feel like you're cooked. You're, you know, mm-hmm. you're, really, you're really exhausted, but you can't sleep. Um, they're yep. different, different concepts. Yeah, yeah, cool. And I, I think July for recreational cyclists in particular is a terrible month because they're all up watching the tour late at night and then waking up yes. early in the morning to go for a bunch ride the next day. Um, <laughs> yeah, brutal time of the year for the Southern Hemisphere. <laughs> yeah. Um, what about, I mean, obviously that's, I guess, sleep around training, for example, particularly, I guess, thinking about some of the ultra endurance events and mm. probably particularly ultra marathon running where it can go, you know, mm. overnight or, you know, multiple yep. days in some cases. So there's mm. events where there is like sleep deprivation is part of the event yes. itself. Um, do we know what effect that that has on people's health if they're doing that a lot? Is that a, a real concern mm. for people or a risk or is it something that's manageable with good sleep, you know, before and after? Yeah, I think generally speaking, it's manageable. And I think the health benefits of being an athlete outweigh, you know, going through periodic sleep deprivation. We know like if you're a shift worker and you're always getting poor sleep for your whole life, yes, you're probably going to have some effects, some negative effects, um, health effects. But I think in that situation, like with the the you know ultra endurance athletes, that yes, if they're getting relatively good sleep beforehand, the body's usually pretty good at going into restorative sleep after it's had a, a big physiological challenge um, to yeah. it. Uh, it might not be straight away; might the first night might not be great, but generally speaking, other um, it tend to tend to improve. Um, and so yeah, look, I think the benefits of being an athlete is, is outweighs that. Um, what we do know, though, is that when people look at strategies for those kinds of things, it seems to be the sleep prior to the event that's most important. So if people mess around with their sleep and try to do short blocks or long blocks to try to replicate what they might do, you know, race across America, say, for example, mm. where they're trying to think about strategies um, and they try to do that before they leave, not a good idea. Banking sleep and getting as much as possible good sleep prior to will put you in a good position to be able to cope um, for periods of sleep of sleep deprivation. So it's how you go into the race is probably more important than some of the strategies that might be employed. Yeah, cool. Mm. So just thinking about that, um, but is it all right though if the athlete um, does do some practice with it, you know, because they feel like they just need to Mm-hmm. Um, get used to running for a really long period of time, only having minimal sleep and then running again. Um, yes. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's important. I mean, we, this is this was in swimmers, but in the, in the lead up to Rio where they were racing 
potentially having to race at midnight or even later because yeah. of the, the timings. We we had a camp in Canberra and we had the 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 um the swimmers doing time trials after midnight and yep, that was a short block of period of sleep deprivation, but it gave them the confidence to know yeah. I can still swim. I've never I've never swum at midnight in my life, but I can yeah. do that. So there's a balance between yes, having that confidence and the preparation and knowing you can do it, but yeah. making sure you're not doing it too close to the to the event yeah. so that you're coming in fatigued you just want to come in uh, come in as fresh as as you can be but with that understanding that you know you got to cope yeah um and then just the other one um is obviously like when we are competing and we're doing let's say a crazy 100k race or something um <laughs> usually the um yeah. the night before you're kind yeah. of questioning yourself what why on earth did I decide this was a good idea you're not getting great sleep. Um, yeah. Is is that something that we should be worried about if, like you said, we can be quite good with banking the sleep because we're mm -hmm. aware that we're probably not going to get the best night's sleep the night before? Yeah, and that's such a good point, um, a good one to raise, Steph, because we don't want people to get so anxious about not sleeping um, that they sleep even worse. Um, mm. And we know that it takes, you know, three, probably three or four nights of really bad sleep before it's going to affect your performance. And what it tends to affect is your perception of effort, your RPE, everything just goes through the roof. Mm. Um, doesn't really tend to change your physiology so much. So, you know, you say, well, you've been an athlete that's been training for 25 years for this. You're not going to drop your heart rate and your VO2 by one bad night of sleep. What you're going to do is feel like crap. Um, but if you're, you know, if you're at the start of a, of a race, an important race, and your, um, you know, adrenaline's probably pretty high, you've pro you, you, you know, you might have some caffeine or some good fuel to get through the event, it's usually not a problem. Uh, you just don't want that to happen for longer than three or four nights in a row in the lead up to it. Yep, yep. So to our listeners, you can freak out for um, three or four nights, but no longer. <laughs> Not, no longer, yeah. And the other thing is often when people are stressed, you know, it does, it does break up your sleep a little bit, but your perception of how much you've slept is often totally wrong when you're a bit stressed. You think, oh, I got zero sleep that night, or I reckon I got two hours. Most people get a lot more than that. They just mm. perceive because it's a bit more broken than normal that they mm. haven't slept. Um, but it's a really important thing to say to people to to not get too stressed about one or two nights of bad sleep because usually what happens then is the body goes into a, a good solid sleep to make up for the fact that you've had the odd bad night here and there. Yep, yep, awesome. Um, so um, just looking at nutrition now, so mm -hmm. for... The listeners who maybe do find it difficult to to get enough sleep or that have perhaps poor quality um they probably yep. are doing these lovely google um searches yep. um where they're looking at that magic nutrition solution um mm -hmm. so if we look more at actual foods rather than than supplements what evidence is there that aspects of nutrition like the type the mm -hmm. quantity the quality the timing of meals or snacks can actually improve the ability to get to sleep or even the quality yeah it's an exciting future area uh, but at the moment the data is a little <laughs> bit contradictory i think what we can say 
is um, don't like I would hang my hat on don't have really high GI foods within the hour before going to bed. Yeah. Um, there tends to be, you know, insulin spike or, you, you know, it tends to interrupt sleep um, yep. by having having high GI foods too close. Yep. Um, if you have it more like four hours beforehand, it's probably going to be beneficial. Um, and high protein foods generally are going to be likely to help rather than to hinder that's kind of where we're at i think you know talking about milk is still probably one of the best Mm -hmm. you know of you know probably what your mum told you when you were a kid right um still probably some of some of the best um the best advice but because there's only been a few studies and then everyone does the studies in different ways with different volumes and different macronutrients and then different Mm. timing and they measure sleep Mm. all different it's it's hard to be really um, concise, but they would be the the sort of the looking at where you have your any high GI foods and and protein being generally speaking pretty good to have pre sleep. Yeah. And is there an understanding of what it is about protein that might be helpful? Yeah, um, it's a good question. A lot of the evidence tends to go towards um, tryptophan, um, having particularly um, high foods that have high tryptophan content and that conversion into serotonin and then conversion into melatonin. It's still, you know, it's the it's the blood brain barrier, right? It's not easy to measure, um, so there's still a fair bit of um, speculation in that area. But it seems to be this ratio of a free tryptophan to large neutral amino acids, and that shift that causes it across the um, the blood brain barrier, which also is obviously why the the high GI foods and um, and um, can also with the insulin response can get in the way of that of that kind of pathway. So it seems to be down to that ratio. Yeah, yeah. And um, beyond sort of specific nutrients, would general comfort in terms of the gut, like how yeah. or how full or empty your bladder is, play a role, especially the night before a race when perhaps you've been carbohydrate loading, loading. Um, yeah. or doing something different in terms of hydration, like hyperhydrating. Yeah, yeah. The hydration is probably the one that's of most concern. That most yep. and and a lot of athletes will, particularly if they're competing and they can't consume a lot of fluid while they're competing, they'll often mm. know oh all training and they'll say you know we all know that we need to rehydrate. So then they rehydrate yep. and then they, they they wake up a lot at night. I'd say mm. wake up waking up once a night is probably okay, but any more than that can be a bit of a you know, I would say is problematic and I've seen it in some actually sometimes I've seen that in really high level diligent athletes who are trying to do everything right and they're actually inadvertently messing up their sleep by having mm. hydration at the wrong time um, yes. and then yeah I think not going to bed too full and not going to bed too hungry um, so I think there's um, there's a nice, you know, happy medium, and that'll be different for different people. But just not going to bed, and then just before. And I know, obviously, for some people, where you know they're trying to lose weight and they're going to bed hungry, you know, that's yeah. you know part of the the strategy. But being yeah. a little bit careful that you don't wake up because you're hungry, or you wake up to go to the bathroom and you realise you're so ravenous that you probably need to go and eat something. Yeah. Uh, so it's just yeah. a, a balance um, there between not having too much and not being too um, too hungry yeah yep and any other foods or nutrients that need to be specifically avoided because they make things worse obviously I'm probably thinking about um, caffeine 
caffeine. Yeah, caffeine's a, a relatively big one, especially for athletes who take it pre-training, afternoon mm. training sessions, um, pre-workouts. I mean, gosh, you mm. guys know how much caffeine can be in those things. People take them in the afternoon. I'm like, there's like <laughs> craziness. Um, <laughs> and, you know, I talk to athletes now that, and, you know, cause people socialise around caffeine, you know, coffee, yes. we all do. Um, but, you know, uh, in the afternoons, what about decaf, you know, thinking about, you know, how you can still enjoy the taste, but, mm. um, but you know, obviously some people do it for the, for the um, performance-enhancing effects as well. So caffeine is, mm. is a bad one. Afternoons, generally not great. Um, and alcohol, like mm. it's probably the worst thing that you can do for your sleep. And as people are now wearing lots of wearables and we can mm. access big data, we're really starting to see how profound alcohol's mm. effects on sleep are in a really negative way. So it helps you fall asleep. So everyone goes, oh, this is great for my sleep. But it is so disturbing um, to people's sleep. So okay. caffeine, alcohol, some people talk about chili, um, high you know, foods that um, – that are really spicy might have um, have some have issues there, so they're probably the main ones to to really stay away from. Yeah, and just with the alcohol, because I know our listeners will be wanting to know, um, is it like a certain dose? Like you know, <laughs> like is one yeah. glass of wine or one beer okay? Yeah, we're actually doing a systematic review on this now, Alan, to start to try and answer that question. So people say to stop. To stop drinking around about you know three to four hours before bed okay. so it's start early finish early um, yep. there's some evidence about not being over 0.05 when you go to bed yep. Um, yep. so but I know for me uh, one glass is enough to disturb my sleep not yeah. dramatically but yep. enough to disturb it two absolutely I you know I look check my aura ring in the morning and it says you know, something about something caused your resting heart rate to be elevated towards the second half of sleep. And I'm like, I know exactly what that was. That was my two glasses of red wine. <laughs> um, and and so, of course, it's one of those things where, look, you know, people are human. They're going to want to have, you know, enjoy yeah. themselves. And if it means the odd glass of red wine here and there, um, but yeah. just to know that if you can have, you know, a couple of hours before you go to bed that's alcohol free, you're probably going to have less effect on your on your sleep. So, yep. so here we're talking about that quality of sleep, aren't we? Rather than, you know, as you said, you know, getting to sleep isn't so much the issue with much, alcohol. It's yes. the quality once you are asleep. And I guess yep. it's not necessarily something you would even know unless you had the aura ring or just that yeah. if you did it frequently, you don't feel yes. as refreshed from refreshed. sleep. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I particularly notice it as I've gotten older and, and maybe some of the younger people cope with it a little bit better. Um, mm -hmm. But I've gone from, yeah, I can have two glasses to now. Oh, I can probably have one. <laughs> Mm. Um, but yeah, it's the disturbance of sleep and it's related to how you metabolize in the alcohol. So, you know, the idea is that we're supposed to be at rest, right? We're supposed, the body's mm. supposed to be at rest and recovering. And here we are trying to get rid of this poison. Um, and also the sleep that you get at is more like sedate sedation rather than mm. sleep. And so the light, it get, it's a lot lighter and a lot more fragmented with, with the alcohol. So yeah, unfortunately it's bad all round. <laughs> mm. It's interesting yeah, you say that sorry. in terms of you know the body has work to do you know to metabolize mm. that alcohol when you're sleeping obviously one of the recovery strategies that's often talked about is like deliberately having protein immediately before bed so mm. you can actually do some of that you know recovery yep. and um you know protein synthesis while you're asleep mm -hmm. is that mm -hmm. potentially a risk there or does the tryptophan kind of override that or no one's looked at it 
Um, sorry, is this in, in terms of with alcohol as well or taking no, alcohol no, out of the picture, just, just, just pure protein? So yeah. you're just having your own protein shake immediately before bed to try and enhance recovery or something? Yeah. Yeah, no, generally speaking, that seems to be a reasonable strategy. Um, and I know of groups who talk about, especially in athletes, where muscle mass is is really important that if they wake up in the middle of the night, there'll be a protein, a small protein drink in the bathroom that they can consume mm -hmm. so you don't have those long breaks um, where there's, you know, you, you get some muscle protein synthesis happening as well because mm -hmm. you don't have these long breaks without any protein intake. So, yeah, I think, and again, it's probably one of those things that's a bit of trial and error, um, but as a general rule, protein pre-sleep is probably going to be a good idea depending on, you know, what it's, what it's mixed with. Yeah. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And what about um, various supplements like pills mm. and powders that can be bought over the counter? Is there good evidence that any of these can be helpful or is it kind of like snake oil? So obviously we spoke mm. about the protein, so possibly mm -hmm. that's an okay one. Um, mm -hmm. Any other um, supplements that we should be weary of that might be helpful or maybe steer, steer clear of, okay. like pre-workouts mm. obviously, steer clear yeah. of? Yeah, steer clear of those too close to too close to bed. Um, mm -hmm. The there's a little bit of evidence around magnesium, um, mm -hmm. a little bit of evidence around theanine, um, and a little bit of evidence around melatonin. But let's talk a little bit about that, um, and a little bit of evidence around zinc. Um, and so, but typically it tends to be if you're deficient in those. Mm. Um, so if you're deficient mm. in magnesium, deficiency, deficient in zinc, you're probably going to have some benefits from it. Now, um, and you guys will know this much better than me, people are like, well, most people are deficient in magnesium anyway. And most mm. people are, you know, do have deficiency. So would it hurt to just let them try it? And for a lot of people, magnesium does really help um, mm. from a sleep perspective. A lot of the other things are probably decent placebos, but if they tell you, yeah. you know, they, they, you can, you know, I could give a sugar pill to an athlete and tell them it's something fancy and it would help them sleep. So there's, yeah. you know, there's there's that angle as well. Yeah. Um, melatonin's probably the one that's of most interest and, and maybe most to be a bit careful about. We know that in Australia, true melatonin is only available via typically via prescription or the, you know, the pharmaceutical grade. Um, and so typically if you've only got a circadian sleep disorder or if you're elderly, you can usually get it over the over from a pharmacy without a script. Um, mm. But that's probably the only way that I'd be really confident with melatonin because um, there's a study out of Canada where they, I think there's like 35 different melatonin supplements that they got from a um, like a typical health food store mm. and the variability in melatonin ranged from none so there's none in it mm. up to like 400 mm. percent the dose that it oh, said wow. that it had and these are already super physiological doses of melatonin that we're giving people like way more than mm. um than not the body produces naturally so there's this idea and now we're starting to understand that melatonin might interact with other hormones um mm. and so now there's this trend for I've seen melatonin gummies for kids and mm. there's actually evidence that it can that melatonin can interfere with puberty. Um, wow. And so I think now we're starting to be just a little bit more cautious um, yeah. and, you know, for some people they really hang their hat on it. Um, I, I'm a little 
I'm a little wary of it. And I must admit, I was someone that took it for a little while just to, yeah. you know, I experiment with things. Yeah. But, um, yeah, now I'm like, I, I, I stay clear of it. Maybe when I travel, I'll, I'll think about it. But generally mm-hmm. speaking, I think it's something that, you know, it's a hormone, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, here we are just take buying this stuff, mm-hmm. you know, and, and you go to the health food shop that says times 10. I mean, what does times 10 mean? Like it doesn't yeah. give you, a lot of them don't even give you milligram, just says melatonin times 10. <laughs> anyway, so mm-hmm. I think that's something to be a little bit cautious of. And the other thing is I, I think that while supplements and things may for some people have a place, as I said, if they're deficient, I always think let's go back to finding out why your sleep's not great. And if you're on your phone too much before you go to bed or you're having masses of caffeine or your variability in your bed and wake times is all over the place, let's address that before we go and reach for, you know, for other things that, you know, any any external things most likely going to have some kind of side effect or potentially have some kind of um, risk or it's habit forming. Um, and then you think that you can't sleep without it um and so yeah i always think it's nice to kind of look at what you can do for your own sleep and what your you know look at your your day to see why that might be interfering with the sleep because if you're you know if you're having three beers a night and then going oh i might just pop some melatonin yeah exactly "Mm." (laughs) (laughs) that's gonna help (laughs) yeah yeah fair enough Um, and so to to wrap this up shona obviously you just mentioned their screen time is obviously one (laughs) factor um, and we'll talk about maybe that in terms of recommendations in just a second. Um, you obviously mentioned, you know, the, the other things that we've looked at in terms of caffeine and, and that sort of thing. But are there any other strategies, sort of basic strategies, not nutrition related necessarily, mm-hmm. that people can do to increase mm-hmm. their chances of getting a good night's sleep? Yeah, I think um, consistency of routine is one thing we're really learning about now. So we've Um, just uh, analyze some of our athlete data that's showing that the quality of your sleep is improved when your consistency of bed and wake time is is high so we've seen that in the general population and even to the point where that's linked to health outcomes the more consistent you are you know we hear about social jet lag where we mess up our weekends by sleeping at all random times on a weekend and we're starting to see how important consistency of sleep is. And, you know, we talk about circadian biology and rhythms and timing being, you know, the body works off a 24 and a bit hour body clock. Like if we can keep things in rhythm and consistent in timing, it's 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 definitely going to help. So I find that really helps just getting as consistent as you can, as often as you can. Um, avoiding the things, you know, probably phones within 30 minutes of sleep, avoiding alcohol, avoiding caffeine. Uh, for people that are stressed, finding a way to manage that or deal with that as much as possible. And that might be, you know, actual help, you know, going and seeing a, a psychologist or it might be some meditation, relaxation, um, you know, Headspace have a good app. Um, There's a range of different ones out there that Calm is quite a good one as well that people can use if they, um, if that's, if that's of interest. Um, And the only other thing that I would say is to be a little bit flexible about your sleep, even though I'm telling you to, you know, do all these things, but just accept that the odd bad night is going to happen and it's not the end of the world. You'll cope, Mm. you know, um, for most people, but address it when it gets serious, but just go with the flow a little bit and know that no one sleeps perfectly every single night of the year. Yeah. Okay. And I guess for those who are maybe struggling 
with sleep, either the, mm-hmm. the quality or quantity, yeah. or they're just not feeling, you know, refreshed by their sleep. They've tried the, you know, the various strategies mm-hmm. that we've talked about mm-hmm. on this podcast, and it's it's still not really working for them. Where would you yeah. recommend they go next to kind of investigate that further? Yeah, I think if there's um, suspicion that there might be like a medical sleep disorder, so sleep apnea in particular, like if they're snorers or someone tells them they stop breathing, um, then going to your GP and getting a referral for a sleep study is a great idea. You can do those at home um, or you can do those in a lab. Um, They're only one night. Um, So for people that have sleep apnea, and I think it's a lot higher numbers than we actually realise, getting that treated is people describe it as life-changing. Um, so it's it's worth excluding some of these some of these things, um, and then just sort of thinking about look if it's a stress thing, let me maybe you know a psychologist is your point of call. Um, if you think it's more of a potentially a medical issue, you might go to your doctor, um, who can then refer you on to a, a sleep physician to to get some help. All right, well, we're going to finish off now with our bonus round, Shona, where we find out a little bit more about you beyond sleep and nutrition and and recovery. Uh, So the first question, if you had to go back to the end of high school and go down a Mm. completely different career path, have you ever thought about what you might have done? If I had to, like, I actually, I wouldn't do anything different. But if I had to, I reckon I'd do something around forensics, um, something that's still in the science, you know, um, investigative um, world, medical forensics or something like that would be super cool. Yep, yep, I can see that. Um, (laughs) One thing on your bucket list that you haven't done? Uh, For me, bucket list is all about travel. It's all about going to places that I haven't been to before. So um, Iceland is my next next plan. So I want to make sure I want to see the Northern Lights and I want to go to Iceland. Um, That's one of my bucket list items around travel. Awesome. Uh, A sport you've always wanted to try but you haven't had the chance? I don't know if I really wanted to try this, but I kind of do skeleton. Um, Right. So... Uh, and I think I'd be too scared to do it, but I'd like to actually give it a try. When we did the TID program at the AIS, I was fascinated by it. Yeah. Um, so to be brave enough to go headfirst um, down one of those runs would be very cool. Yeah, yeah. We spoke to Dave Martin about that uh, oh, yeah. a couple of months Brilliant. ago. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> have, have you ever gone feet first? We also spoke to Asker Jerkendrup a couple of weeks oh, ago yeah. and Andy yeah. Jones, who did the bobsled ride, and yeah. he said he couldn't walk for about a month afterwards. But have you you've been that? <laughs> been foot first no 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 no, i haven't so that might be stage one (laughs) yeah fair enough um favorite sporting moment of 2022 so far that one for me is easy um that's ash barty winning the oz open yeah nice working i was working down there and yeah as a person as someone who deserved it um and rafa as well so yes rafa um but ash aussie girl yeah couldn't be All right. And finally, do you live by any particular advice or motto? Oh, oh no. <laughs> I don't actually. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> Although, I've got a, Although I've got a sleep one um, that might be helpful, and that is never stay up late for anything that you wouldn't get up early for. Um, oh, and like so that. what that means is like if you wouldn't get up, and this I do live by, if you wouldn't stay up if you wouldn't set your alarm two hours early to watch something on netflix why would you stay up two hours late to watch something on netflix Mm. um sleep asleep asleep um and so i do try to do that as much as possible you know there's some things in life you have to do if you've got to 
work to be done. You either get up early and do it or you stay up late at night to get it done. But for a lot of things, we just um, we just do things um, for, for no particular reason mm-hmm. um, and all of a sudden it just creeps into sleep time. So never stay up late for something you wouldn't get, get up early for That's is probably... Probably my favourite, and people get sick of hearing me bang on about that, but I think it's a good one. <laughs> yeah, I like that. I haven't heard that before. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much for your time, Shona. I think that's been nice. really helpful for people. Hopefully it will help them uh, work out things that they can do realistically around their sleep, mm-hmm. but also maybe the things to not worry about or, or spend too much time or money on as well. So, yeah, thanks so much yeah, for your time. Thank you. Thanks for the great yeah. questions. That was great. Thank you very much, Shona. I'm sure all our listeners got a a lot out of that. And just to help summarise those key messages, we have our one and only um, summariser, Al. All right. So our question was, can changing my nutrition improve my sleep? And I guess there's a few aspects to consider from that. Shona talked about, you know, their sleep quantity and this sleep quality. So, you know, how long are you actually in bed versus how long is your brain actually in the various stages of sleep? And obviously the goal is to get a good quantity of quality sleep. Mm. Now, the amount that you actually need varies. So having a you know an eight-hour rule or a nine-hour rule or a seven-hour rule seems like it's a bit of pop science rather than you know, scientific uh, evidence-based, but it's usually probably more than the general recommendations would seem to be useful potentially for athletes, but obviously not always possible, particularly for non-professional athletes where you've got issues around, you know, fitting training and often large volumes of training, particularly for triathletes where you're training three disciplines at once uh, around your know, work and family and all those kind of things can be a real challenge. Uh, sleep deprivation, uh, we know that sleep deprivation is likely to uh, impair sort of high intensity exercise efforts and it may have some effect on sort of the more moderate intensities that you see in sort of endurance and ultra endurance events as well but uh, certainly we know that can be problematic. We do know that short-term sleep deprivation is okay though so if you're going without sleep or, or you know have poor quality sleep for a day or two it's probably not the end of the world. And I guess as Shona said, you know, sometimes you can get a bit of performance anxiety around sleeping. And so I guess the key thing there is, you know, don't lose sleep over losing sleep. (laughs) And so if it's, you know, particularly the night before a big race or something like that, probably not the end of the world. Uh, If you can bank a little bit of sleep beforehand, particularly for some of those ultra endurance events, like, you know, your 24 hour races or your ultra marathons that might even go longer than that or, or pretty close to that, that can be potentially useful. We talked briefly about wearables and the fact that they are actually starting to improve quite a bit over the last few years in improving the ability to track the time that you're actually asleep versus lying in bed. But they're probably still not perfect, particularly in terms of getting detail around the different stages of sleep. And and as Shona said, we don't really understand fully what the different stages of sleep really mean and and what the importance of them are. We know that probably those deeper sleep stages are better, but we don't know all the, the full details of that, uh, one of those areas in neuroscience that is hard, obviously, to, to unpack for various reasons. From a nutrition point of view, Shona talked about tryptophan being an amino acid, so it's going to be found in protein-containing foods, may be helpful for increasing the ability to get to sleep. So having sort of higher protein in your meals, if it's sort of later at night before bed, might be helpful. She also talked about um, high glycemic index foods 
being potentially detrimental to sleep, and that's if you have them too close to bedtime. So this, I guess, has particular implications for people who are needing more carbohydrate at night because they've got a big training session or a race the next morning, potentially. So you might be deliberately eating up with carbohydrate and deliberately eating more refined types of carbohydrate so it doesn't sit with you. And we'll talk about this in a minute in terms of bloating and, and gut discomfort that might hinder your ability to get to sleep. So you might be going for those more refined carbs, which would then well, usually, there are exceptions, but usually be higher glycemic index. So having those within an hour before bed may actually be detrimental, but having them, you know, three or four hours before bed, you know, dinner time and then going to bed three or four hours later seems to be fine. Uh, I guess the other things are generally those that are going to be a hindrance as well, because the supplements that are touted to potentially improve sleep, um, the evidence for those seems to be pretty sketchy. But if we look at the things that maybe to avoid or be mindful of, caffeine is the obvious one. I think that kind of goes without saying, and most people sort of anecdotally will know that anyway. Alcohol is the interesting one because it might help you fall asleep in the first place, but it's very good at disturbing your sleep. So your sleep quality is quite impaired. And I know, Steph, you were a bit bit sad to hear that one, unfortunately. So <laughs> yeah. if you're going to have your wine, have it early and finish early, was shown as message there. Uh, and then the other things, I guess, to consider are not necessarily specific nutrients or supplements or anything, which is the, kind of the, the magic pills and potions that people tend to think about, but more just about how we eat and drink as well. So thinking about, for example, hydration, if we're drinking a lot of fluid close to bed and then we have to be up all night peeing, then that's obviously not going to be helpful to get a good night's sleep. And so particularly if you've got a big training session the next day or a race in hot weather, you might be tempted to sort of aggressively hydrate the night before. Um, but you know, you're going to pee the majority of that out overnight. That's going to disturb your sleep and it's not going to be in your body to hydrate you in the next morning anyway. And then the other one is, you know, particularly on uh, the day before race, carbohydrate loading is a common one where you might get that sort of bloating or discomfort or just feeling a fullness just because you've eaten so much food compared to normal. And then that can disturb your sleep as well. So have a think about that or any other things that are sort of causing gut upset. So for some people, if you've got certain types of foods that are causing you sort of GI symptoms just on a day-to-day -day basis, just be mindful that uh, eating those, you know, particularly in the evening might be something that's going to potentially impact on your sleep as well. And then finally, if you are struggling from a sleep perspective, you're trying all these various things and it's just not working for you, definitely seek out help. There obviously can be medical reasons that you have impaired sleep. Um, it can be helpful to see both a GP or potentially a psychologist if it's more related to sort of anxiety or insomnia or something like that as well. So there are solutions there that are going to be well beyond the scope of nutrition. So I guess, you know, can changing my nutrition improve my sleep? Maybe. There are a few things obviously there to avoid that might be helpful for some people. A couple of things that might be helpful in terms of, you know, the tryptophan, you know, the higher protein meals closer to bed. And, you know, if you are having the, the higher carbohydrate, particularly the high GI meals, just having those, you know, a few hours before bed rather than close to bedtime. Um, but other than that, I guess there's going to be a whole bunch of other things that are not nutrition related, which are going to have as much, if not more impact in a lot of cases. Yeah. 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 Awesome. So next episode to follow up on, on this one, we've got 42B. So same question, can changing my nutrition improve my sleep? And we're joined by cyclist and coach and also listener, our Cyrus Monk. That's right. Yeah. So some people, particularly in the cycling community in Australia, will probably know Cyrus. He's been a 
a regular in the National Road Series here for many, many years. He's actually over in Europe at the moment. Uh, so we'll hear a little bit about that and what he's doing over there and, and some of his, his international cycling. And uh, yeah, it'll be great to, to hear from him. And he has his own podcast. So we'll hear a little bit about oh, that as well. Awesome. And it's uh, a cycling podcast. So cool. yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Perfect. All right. Sounds good. Uh, just a reminder that if you've got any questions or feedback, please contact us at the Long Munch Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. And um, if you do like listening to us, please, we'd love you to hit subscribe. Um, and if you think a particular episode we've covered might be useful for your peer or training partner, we'd love you to tell them about it if it's helpful. Otherwise, we will leave you in peace, let you go watch more of the Com Games. Uh, I know the athletics is starting tonight, so that's super exciting. And we'll talk to you soon. Will do. See you, everyone.